Thank you everyone for joining. In front of me I have Jonathan Becker. Jonathan is the founder and director of Thrive Digital. Thrive Digital plans, builds, optimizes online advertising campaigns. They do work on platforms like Google, Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, and other mobile ad networks. His clients range from Uber, Lululemon, Whistler Blackcomb, Wilson, and his Steve Jobs wife. I'm really stoked to have him here. I'm fortunate for him to take the time out of his day to sit down. Jonathan, do you want to give more of a background to what it is that you do? Uh, yeah, well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to uh, partake in what is actually my very first podcast as well. Um, I think, yeah, I think you nailed it. Uh, Thrive is a digital marketing agency. Um, we do a lot of work with uh, some pretty notable companies. Um, maybe we'll touch a little bit on that later, but um, yeah, I love what I do and again, happy to be here. Let's start off by talking a little bit about your background. I was uh, doing a bit of research on you today and I came across your LinkedIn profile and I saw you built a company in 2007 called PokerRecruiter.com. <laughs> Are you a poker player? <laughs> uh, good research. Um, I am a poker player. Uh, poker Recruiter was one of the first businesses that I ever started. It was actually the first successful company that I ever started. Uh, for some perspective, Thrive is the fourth company that I've been involved in, that I founded. Um, I think what's interesting about the poker world, at least at the time, was that that website was an affiliate marketing site. And so it is actually what ended up kind of accidentally getting me into search engine optimization, um, which resulted in basically the career that I have now and the direction that I have now. So um, I do still play cards now and again. Uh, I have like a love-hate relationship with that industry, uh, I think. I got out of it for all the right reasons, but uh, it was a wonderful learning experience. We're going to have to sit down and play cards sometime now that I <laughs> I'd love to. I spent most of my university going to lectures and then playing online poker at the same time. <laughs> nice. What exactly was Poker Recruiter? Like, how did it how did it work? Like, was it just like a link between websites or different uh, poker agencies? What was it? Yeah, it's a really good question. So, um, the poker business is uh, is an interesting business. There are companies that host bets and kind of like take deposits, and that's where you actually like play cards. And then um, there's a whole bunch of other sites called affiliate sites, which basically do nothing but get traffic through a variety of different you know tactics or strategies and then sell the traffic back to these poker sites, and that's what I was doing. Um, so, funny enough, um, I'm happy to admit that I was basically a spammer back in the day, and so a lot of the early like tactics, so to speak, that I uncovered had to do with you know spamming Craigslist or figuring out how to do um, really early forms of search engine optimization, which was effectively spamming Google. Um, but it was really profitable and it was a really interesting company. I was like 25 and uh, making good money for the very first time in my life. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the site basically had relationships with all, you know, poker stars, Full Tilt, um, all these, you know, big iconic poker companies that are online that you've heard of. And we would basically sell traffic to them that eventually would turn into the players at the table at their companies. And what did you learn from this experience? You said it was one of your first companies. What is it that kind of helped, or what take did you take from it? Um, I think I learned a lot. When I look back at that time in my life, um, I realized that it was my very first connection with the internet and marketing on the internet. So um, going all the way back to when I was like four years old, I had an office at my house. Like, no joke, my, my parents would make fun of me, and I had like a kind of like this big bay window that I put all my toys at. And this is like the early 80s, right? Um, but uh, I basically had an office, so the passion to do business and be an entrepreneur was always there. Um, but Poker Recruiter was actually the first time that I was able to like channel that entrepreneurial energy and desire into a real company. And then it also put me in touch with what is now kind of like you know, my, my business first love, which was internet marketing, which is what, you know, Thrive has become. Um, and it's interesting because Thrive, some of the roots are still there and what I used to do, we're 30 people now. Um, we have an office obviously in Vancouver, we're about to open a small office in Europe, um, but uh, it can all be traced back to uh, Poker Recruiter, which is really funny. No one's ever asked me that before, by the way. <laughs> 
I had to dig into you a little bit, right? I, wasn't gonna, <laughs> I had to do some homework for this, so yeah. Interesting. What is it? So you said from four years old, you kind of always had an office. How did you know that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Like, what was it about you that had that sense that you always kind of knew you wanted to build companies? Um, it's it's interesting. I don't, I can't put my finger on it precisely, but. It had something to do with wanting to build my own thing uh, early on. So uh, I was a big, you know, collector of things when I was a kid. I had like a rock collection. I had a baseball card collection. I used to collect GI Joes and stuff like that. And um, I think, you know, going from that mindset where you're trying to like, you know, create something or amass something and build something, the same, uh, the essence of that is is probably having to do with why I like business. I want to build something, I want to create something. Um, I think when I take a bit of a step back from what we do here, like on a day-to-day -day basis, I think the coolest thing that the company does is create jobs in Vancouver, quite frankly. Um, and we also train people really well to do some pretty wonderful work at an enterprise level. And so um, I'm pretty fascinated by the fact that that's actually possible in this life and that I have the ability to now you know take these wonderful projects that we get um, some of which are household you know names at this point and then channel that into creating jobs for people that they like and giving them opportunities that may not have otherwise existed in Vancouver we'll get back to um, building something a little bit later on but I think you really uh, hit the nail on the head there with a couple of things that's really interesting Tell me a little bit about from Poker Recruiters to Thrive now. It's always been, I'm guessing, about eight or so years. What's the path been for you, and what does it look like from that first business? Yeah, it's interesting. So, again, going back to the poker business, um, I was kind of a one-man show, and so I realized that there were a bunch of limitations that I had from a technical perspective. And I kind of went through this large like introspective process at a certain point where I realized that I loved the work I was doing being web development and web marketing with Poker Recruiter, but I hated the industry that I was in. It was, there's a period where I was single and I would be like, you know, going on dates with girls and I'd have to explain what I did or, you know, inevitably meet someone's parents and kind of have to explain that I was in the gambling business. And it just, that and a whole bunch of other reasons, I just didn't want to be in that industry. I kind of started to develop like a moral problem with some of the nature of the work that I was doing um, but from that experience what I did realize is that I loved again web development and I loved the marketing of websites and so um, I was able to shut down Poker Recruiter at its peak so it was the most profitable it had ever been I had kind of a couple people working for me um, really good things were happening and I decided to basically close down the company which was emotionally difficult that kind of resulted in a couple months where I was like, you know, what am I going to do? I had this degree in political science and previous to all this, I'd been in real estate for a while. But when you looked at my resume, it was like a total patchwork of unrelated things. Um, and so at that point, I decided to go back to school and I looked around at a bunch of different programs from, you know, going back to university and doing a master's to going to a technical school. And I ended up landing on BCIT. Um, which for anybody not from Vancouver is the British Columbia Institute of Technology. Um, I went there and studied web development, um, which was amazing. At, at around that same time, I really became obsessed with search engine optimization. So for those unfamiliar, um, you can optimize a website so that it surfaces within search results for the various you know, words that we refer to as keywords that you think your business should rank for on Google. And as I was learning web development, uh, a lot of these more complex concepts started kind of getting unpacked for me. And so I was able to disseminate, you know, how to structure a website properly so that you had the highest likelihood of ranking. But I also understood I was doing a ton of reading at this point, basically became obsessed with search engine optimization. Um, and so here I was at BCIT learning how to build websites and suddenly kind of uh, taking the passion that I had for the web marketing piece and channeling all of that into SEO. Um, I was very fortunate to have a class at BCIT where the instructor basically asked us whether we he wanted us to bring in any business owners within the community that you know we would like to talk to and hear about what their businesses are like. And so 
I basically asked him to bring in all of the heads of the different internet marketing agencies in town. Um, there was one in particular that I really, really wanted to work at, and uh, the president of that company came in, um, and I met him, and I was just kind of like, hey, you know, I'm learning web development, and I'm fully versed on SEO. Um, I have all this experience, and you, you have to hire me. Like, you absolutely have to hire me. And so um, it was kind of awkward, too. It was funny because he literally finished giving this talk in front of the class. No one got up. It, you know, I, was, I basically bolted from my chair, which was all the way at the back of the class, walked right up to him in front of everybody. Obviously, people are making fun of me at this point. But, um, you know, I took kind of the risk of embarrassment, and then it ended up working. Like, he, a few weeks later... Um, I got a phone call and he was just basically like, you know, our head of SEO is leaving and would you be interested in like coming here and being our lead SEO guy? And so that, uh, from Poker Recruiter and then going back to school, I kind of got into this path in the SEO community or the SEO world, if you want to call it that, where I started, uh, kind of a, a few really, uh, key roles at really interesting companies. Um, where I was in charge of all of their organic search and search engine optimization, this being at a time when, you know, if you were at the top of rankings on Google for the keywords you were targeting, you were at like the absolute pinnacle of your internet marketing game kind of thing. Um, and so I started developing a reputation, um, I guess as just like a specialist in search engine optimization. Um, and I eventually left that job, went to take another job, and, and slowly, over a period of years, people kind of started asking me to do freelance work. And so uh, the freelance gigs kind of started off with like a local sign printing shop and a coffee shop. I think I worked for some realtor here on the west side at one point. And then it started getting bigger, the referrals, you know, what started as like these little businesses that were kind of trusting me with very meager projects. Uh, turned into referrals to like, uh, you know, Donnelly Group or BCIT where I had actually gone to school or uh, eventually Lululemon, which for a really long time was our biggest client and I've been very proud to uh, work with for a number of years now. Um, and yeah, I guess the rest of the story of Thrive is just that, you know, we started working out of my apartment. Um, my first hire ended up becoming my business partner. Um, and then it's just been like holding on to a rocket ship ever since then quite honestly like we've been very fortunate to have picked really great people here we can really like stand behind the work that we do um there's a lot of technical prowess and and uh know-how here but at the same time growing the organization to pass you know 30 people or approaching that mark um is always challenging uh and kind of learning you know what you don't know for the very first time about running a team that to me is you know the biggest team I've ever run um, is uh, always a challenge and I you know we stand up to the challenge uh, and I think we've been handling it well but uh, it's not without its ups and downs. I've definitely read about that that it's challenging to grow a company as you go from like 10, 30 even to pass like 160 and even now we're having multiple offices one being in Europe across an ocean that that's where the challenges really become like how do you take the DNA from this office and transfer it all the way over to Europe, right? And so that's definitely the business. I'm sure it's interesting, but at the same time challenging because like, how do you make sure that it translates over? <clears throat> totally, so um, the transfer of culture from one office to the next is the most important thing, in my opinion. Um, part of the lifeblood of the business here is kind of like the ethos that comes with it, the, uh, the way we've you know, decided to structure how we operate, how we do things. Uh, there's kind of like a work ethic here that's really important. Um, the way we deal with that in this particular situation is that the person is actually from this office and is going to, uh, in this case, Paris and just setting up shop there. So they were trained here, they came up here, uh, they know everybody here kind of thing. It's not just uh, like we put out like an, a job posting like in some random city. Um, so we were very fortunate for that. We have a, a bunch of different projects that we're working on in Europe right now, and so it just kind of made sense. What is the culture here? Because I was here uh, about a couple weeks back during the day, and so I got to see the office actually in full business mode, and you can definitely feel a very positive vibe. You know, you guys have two different rooms. Everyone seems very nice, very focused, but there definitely seems to be a good work ethic and a good energy here. What is that culture trying to build, and why is that important to you? Um, 
So we consider ourselves to be like the elite in our industry. Um, again, we look for really technical backgrounds a lot of time um, when we're doing hiring, but moreover, or in addition to that, I should say, um, we also look for people that we think are compatible with not only our clients, which is very important, but you know the rest of the team here. So one litmus test that I'll kind of use and ask myself during an interview process just to make sure that we're kind of maintaining that the vibe as you described it um, is, you know, can I go for a drink with this person? I don't necessarily mean like a beer, it could be coffee or whatever, but can you go hang out with this individual for, you know, an extended period of time and carry a conversation and, um, you know, are they likable and all of that stuff. What's funny is that it doesn't mean we only hire the kids that were like cool in high school or anything like that. Uh, I certainly was not. <laughs> um, but uh, what it does mean is that, you know, we, we will take a good look at people who we think are very intelligent and talented. Um, oftentimes the personality matches, I think. Uh, most people here by every admission are, you know, super nerdy and geeky. There's like a huge like Star Wars fan club back there. People, you know, grew up watching Star Trek or they read like weird, you know, space novels and stuff like that on their spare time. Um, but it, it really is all kinds, you know? We also have people who are like really, really, really into sports and people who play a lot of sports and then people who don't play sports. And so um, we also have an interesting culture. If you look like in our office, it's an incredibly diverse group of people, right? We have people from um, ev every background, creed, religion. It's actually super interesting. Um, and I think that that is part of the reason why we're so successful at having the culture that we do. Everybody is different and everyone comes together and there's this kind of strange sense of unity and trust throughout the office because of that. It's a pretty strong team. When I was here, you took me out on the balcony. You guys have a beautiful big balcony. You were telling me how you guys do barbecues in the summer. I think that's a key thing of companies today. Even then, like, just use the stereotypical uh, examples of like, Google and Amazon, right, where people are really building cultures, right, and that's mm -hmm. a key thing at our company, our franchising company as well, and it's uh, a lot about culture, and one of the lemon tests in the investing world is like when you're buying an investment, they always say it's the Montana room test, where it's kind of, if you're with a stock promoter portfolio manager, and you're stuck with them in a room in Montana for 24 hours, like, would you still want to be around that person? Because <laughs> a lot of investing is about trust, right, and it's like if somebody's sleazing or sleazy or deceiving, you really don't want to give them your money. And so there really are different tests that you can do to really make sure that you have the right character, whether that's just putting your own money into an investment with somebody or building a company. You also want to have the right DNA because you want to carry forward what it is you're trying to build. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, I couldn't agree more. I mean, in terms of the cultural aspect, it's funny because when you're a really small group of people, when you start out a company, um, the culture is kind of innate, right? It's just there. It's the, the the culture, so to speak, is the way you interact with the people around you and how that is transmitted to new people that join the organization. I think you literally have to start investing in your culture at a certain point, not only from you know the hiring process and making sure you're adding the right people, but um, you know to use like a, an analogy, I suppose, like you can have. A farm you can have the best tools you can plant the seeds you can do everything you need but if you don't water it nothing's gonna happen you'll just never grow any crops right and so there's something to said about there's something to be said I think about um, definitely having the right people creating the right environment and then doing things that make people excited about the company now it's not like we're Google, it's not like we're Amazon we don't have like Google camp and you know Amazon I've heard does like crazy stuff with their staff we're learning how to do that, but I think that the types of things that we do do as a group are very relevant to people's lives where they're at these days. Um, whether that's, you know, realizing that Monday mornings suck for everybody and making sure that breakfast is brought into the office that day or going on, you know, small retreats around British Columbia so that we can just take a step away from the office and actually focus on just having a good time and stuff like that, it, it can translate into like a whole bunch of different things. Um, but that said, it's super, super critical to always have an eye on, uh, I think I would call it like literally investing in, in the group, investing in the culture and making sure that people are, you know, stoked on coming to work every day. 
at Pender, we just did a uh, team building event. You guys want to try this out. We went to Dirty Apron. Have you heard of that place? Mm-hmm. So they do uh, basically like a cooking thing. So we had right, to make yeah. an entree, a main dish, and desserts, and you have like gourmet cooks that walk you through it. And so and it was a contest, right? So it's like the appetite team versus the entree team and versus the dessert team. And it was great, right? Because you're working in six and fives, and you're everything's from scratch. So you learn a lot about cooking, but at the same time, it's really building the company together. And it's an environment that you're not going to see normally, right? You're in a kitchen drinking wine, having fun, and it's a great way to do it. I totally agree. That's a, that's a great idea. Well, let's switch gears here a little bit. I saw you speak at Man Talks a while back. You spoke about fear, a subject that I'm very fascinated by. From what I recall of the talk, and I did watch uh, a talk you have online as well, you, the thing you talk about is there's this notion in society that failure is not an option, right? And really what you believe in is reframing that failure is an option. It's actually really important to fail because when we fail, we actually have the ability to learn and grow from those experiences. Yeah. Tell me a little more about your viewpoint on failure and why that's important <clears throat> to you. Um, yeah, I love this topic. Uh, I, I love it because I think from a very early age, we are taught to succeed and not to fail. Um, uh, and, I, and this is a little bit what I, you know, of what I spoke about, I think, at that talk. But, um, you know, you're learned to get, you're, you're, you're taught to get the A plus on an exam or a test when you're in elementary school, right? You're taught to try and win the provincial championship or be the best, you know, baseball team in Little League or whatever it may be. Um, in very many cases, you're not taught to, you know, bottom out type thing. And yet, in my view, uh, the most successful people that I've seen have had like horrendous failures, like just you know failure to launch type thing. Um, my view on failure and success is that they're inextricably linked with one another. So you you literally cannot have one without having experienced the other at some time in your life. Um, I've had you know failures both in my work life, in my personal life, in friendships, in family, like relationships and I think that um, it's hard for a lot of people to talk about there's a stigma in the society that we live in around the concept of failure but at the same time you talk to everyone about it um, especially like I'll, I'll focus on the example with entrepreneurs but you talk to most entrepreneurs and like you know they they've, what is consistent is that they just keep trying whatever it takes the things the obstacles let's call them failures along the way that they've dealt with, they, they don't stop them. Um, they end up becoming these really, really powerful learning experiences. It may not be how you choose, you know, how you want to learn <laughs> a certain lesson, but I think that um, the reason why I like giving those talks, particularly in front of students, is because they're trying to succeed and they don't realize necessarily that there's going to be some really heavy bumps along the way. Um, maybe they do realize that, but nobody wants to talk about it. And so I love the analogy of uh, the stock market where, you know, you look at, you know, the performance of like the NASDAQ or something like that throughout the 1990s and it's really tumultuous. It's like up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. But generally speaking, it goes on an upward trend, right? It goes up and to the right type thing. And so I see that as analogous with how people's lives are in terms of successes and failures. You're going to have good days and bad days and good months and bad months um, and even, you know, really horrible years and great years. But generally speaking, as time and life go on, things get better. Um, and I think that failure at the time is kind of like frequently a very miserable experience. Like it's really tough to go through those times. but people become much, much stronger for it. Um, and and I can only use myself really as a direct example, but um, we talked about, you know, Poker Recruiter a moment ago, the poker business that I ran, and that was very successful. We talked about Thrive a little bit. Thrive is obviously a growing company, um, probably the, you know, the most successful company that I've ever run, but we haven't talked about Pushpin Digital, which is another company that I started in the digital signage world way before that was a thing where I lost all of my money. Um, I had a business partner who was amazing. Uh, we were both you know, good at what we did. I think we made some like critical mistakes up front in that 
we were probably we didn't evaluate the market enough. Um, we were too early, basically. What everything we were selling and trying to do, like five six years later, became like a normal thing. And it just for those people who don't know, digital signage is basically those screens that you'll see when you walk into the bank or you walk into Tim Hortons or any electronic signage that makes use of like an LCD monitor or some sort of you know digital monitor that's flat screen in a retail space or an office space or whatever it may be. Um, but that business just totally flopped. Like we had some clients, but we basically lost money. And at a certain point I had to exit the company kind of with my tail between my legs with no money whatsoever. Like every single penny that I had had, including some money that I had borrowed from my parents went into that business and nothing came out of it. <laughs> and so, uh, I look back at that so fondly. It was not fun at the time, but I learned so like so many invaluable lessons that I've brought with me here and to other things that I've done. I think that in a lot of cases, it's about understanding what you don't want to do more than what you want to do or what you shouldn't do as opposed to what you should do. Um, and so the whole failure thing, like you just learn the hard way a lot of times. And, and I think it's wonderful. That reminds me of saying like you learn by not doing certain things and doing something. It's like I used to coach tennis for a really long period of time. And so I love tennis because it's feedback right away, right? You hit a ball in the net, hit the ball out of the court, you know, you miss and you create an error. And then it's just like, how do you correct that? And so one of the ways that I actually found very useful in coaching was like, I'd make people hit the ball in the net deliberately. And they'd find this really weird. It's like, well, you're teaching me how to make a mistake. I'm like, no, I'm teaching you how to understand what mistake you're making. So how that feels. And then you know, like, how to correct that, right? And then we hit balls out on purpose. And then you yeah. eventually find that range. People are so afraid to do make those mistakes. It was almost like creating a safe space. Like, hey, no, hit the net. Hit the ball long. Know what it feels like. Because then once you understand what your range is, then you can scale it down and get into the court. And people, it was always kind of, you had to really bring people to the right state of mind to do that, but it worked quite well once people kind of wrap their head around it. Yeah, totally. Uh, I agree. I think, like, there. actually, it's funny, because I'm not, like, a sporty guy, but I think there's a ton of important lessons to be learned from athletics that can be brought to the business world, um, but that idea of, like, forcing someone to screw up just so they see what it's like and what not to do is incredibly important. It's funny how much we don't talk about failure. It's one of those things that it's like a dirty word in society, right? And it's so, and I truly fundamentally believe that, like it's so essential to your growth and what you need to do, mm-hmm. whether that is in business or sports, whatever it is. But it does seem like it's stigmatized. Like we just don't talk about it nearly enough. Like in your opinion, why do you think that is? Like why, like, you know, it's just it's so obvious that we need that for growth and change. Why can't we just accept that more and more? Um, it's a complicated situation. So firstly, I think that more and more we actually are starting to talk about this topic um, but in certain ways so if you look at you know Silicon Valley right now where we do a lot of our business there's literally a conference called FailCon and there's this uh, ethos of you know these startups who are venture backed but um, you know if they're going to fail they want to fail fast and like uh, there are Dialogues going on within the business community about this stuff. I think, and 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 that when I talk about failure, oftentimes it's it's about you know the business side of it because uh, entrepreneurs are understood to be risk takers. I think, and so part of taking the risk is that there's high reward and high loss. I think. Um, so that's one piece of it, and I think that in terms of business, we're getting better at at talking about failure. I think we're still at infantile stages in terms of talking about what failure looks like in your personal life. Um, Failure in the bedroom, failure in relationships, failure with families and stuff like that. Um, It's still very much, you know, stigmatized. Um, And I think that it's embarrassing for a lot of people to talk about this stuff. I think it's, uh, again, you know, we're brought up in this community where people are pushing us to do the best we can and and that's great we absolutely should Um, but there's no you know failure 101 or anything like that in university Um, you're taught again you know as I said earlier to get the A plus to you know pass the test to get your certification to get your license Uh, no one embraces you know you at the age of 16 when you fail your driver's license no one is excited when you try and 
you know, become an accountant, but you fail the final exam to do that. Um, no one, actually, I, <laughs> the one exception I think is actually in business. There's like almost an honor now amongst entrepreneurs, specifically and especially in, in technology, where it's almost like a rite of passage to have like, you know, blown up ethically in, in your first like business endeavor. Lost millions and millions of dollars. <laughs> yeah, and like, then, yeah. but only to like, you know, rise above the ashes and, and be the hero at the end of the day with a successful company, right? Not everybody necessarily gets to do that, but that narrative is very well documented at this stage, at least again in that sector. I don't know about what it's like for lawyers or doctors or insurance brokers or anything like that, but uh, it, at least in that one area, we're at the vanguard of kind of dealing with failure out in the open. Um, I, I say that, that's my anecdotal view from what I see and read and hear um, as someone who goes to San Francisco a lot and works with, again, like a lot of you know startups in, in the Bay Area, but at the same time, uh, I also read studies that say that entrepreneurs who are running startups have like an abnormally high suicide rate and stuff like that. So clearly the message is not, you know, pervasive throughout all levels of society. And uh, I also think that it's a cultural thing. It depends on like your cultural background and how, you know, your parents might have uh, frowned on failure when you were growing up or whether that's, you know, a social moray in your you know particular area, whatever it may be. I agree. I think it's also uh, universities don't necessarily teach failure because there's no failure 101. And we're definitely moving away to a culture, you know, like you go to school now, whether that be college or university, and you're not guaranteed a job, right? The amount of people that have degrees. And so they're looking for different alternatives. And it's like, how do you create a name for yourself or make yourself different from the competition? And so I think that innately starts with taking more risks and thinking more creatively outside the box because the days of you know, getting a degree and getting a job are almost over, right? Unless mm -hmm. it's very specialized, you know exactly what you're going for. Yeah. And so it is forcing people to think a little bit more creatively and outside the box because it just, it's the way it is with six million people on the planet now. I, I completely agree. Um, there's no question that the world that I live in is very different than the world that, you know, my parents grew up in. Um, so my father is an engineer and an architect. And my mother it was a nurse. They're both retired, but <laughs> um, you know they lived in a time where you went to school and then you did what you trained for in school for the rest of your life. Basically, we live in a time where you almost go to school knowing that your undergrad will have almost nothing to do with what you actually end up doing. And so, school now is like this weird like incubation period where you're just basically expected to become an adult and stop being a child type thing by mm -hmm. the, the end of it. So <laughs> some people are better at that, you know. <laughs> You'll have your wild days. At, yeah, exactly. And... A feeling on that than, than others, I think. But um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting change. Um, and, you know, people are talking about millennials a lot these days and um, what it's like to work with millennials and what it's like to be a millennial and how millennials being people who were born after 82, basically. Um, what their expectations of the world are. And the interesting thing is actually that I think that that generation is very aware that they can actually change the world that we live in. If they don't like something, they can disrupt it, right? And what is fascinating to me is that this is the group of people who have disrupted, you know, and again, I'm just going back to my tech, you know, experience now, but this is a group of people who now believes they can do anything and as a result of that we've disrupted industries that have been around for a hundred years or longer right so the taxi business with uber the eyewear business warby parker is you know disrupting luxottica casper is disrupting the way that mattresses have been sold for a hundred years and that horrible experience um there's like startup after startup after startup that is just basically rethinking the world in the way that they think it should be they're making a, a profit at the same time, but uh, it's pretty impressive. It's cool. So, I, you know, how relevant even is school at this point? Uh, I don't don't take that the wrong way. I, I really believe in going to school. Uh, it's I wouldn't be here had I not gone through my degree and then later BCIT. But um, the role that that plays in people's lives is definitely changing. And the value of school is just different now. Like if you are going to go to school, if you're listening to your thing, but I think you really need to have a concrete purpose and understand 
what that path is. And that path might change. It's not that it's like you know 100%. It's like, but you really should have a high level of conviction because like to go there for four years now and spend as much as you're going to spend to kind of maybe figure it out. Like, I just feel there's a lot more value in kind of taking one or two years doing different life experiences, working in different jobs, maybe traveling, whatever it is that you feel you need to do, and then going to school after getting some concrete feedback. I think that's what failure really is. It's like you go, you do things, and you get feedback, and you take that information. And then like, so if you're not certain where you want to go, then you just start off in the real world doing some things, and then go to school from there. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, yeah, I think what we'll see from like an education point of view is uh, that that industry, if you want to look at it that way, is going to continue to change. Um, it, you know, there's, again, there's this hero mentality about, you know, these people who have dropped out of university and started these billion dollar companies and stuff like that. And there's, there's many of them at this point. Um, it's pretty clear that you don't necessarily need to go to school for certain types of things. But that said, you know, try being a doctor without going to school, try being an engineer without going to school, try being an architect or a nurse or whatever it may be, you know, accounting, law, without going to school. There's going to be some industries where, <laughs> for all the right reasons, you're always going to need to go through a lot of school to get there. But I think what's changing is, what is an arts degree? What does that mean? Is it necessary? If I plan on getting an arts degree, is it better for me to go, you know, and get some world experience, travel, get a job, and then do my degree, or should I just do my degree, again, become an adult, and then, you know, enter the workforce and just see where the wind blows me, basically? Um, I guess, you know, the future will tell us what, what happens there, but all I know is that everyone that I know that was in arts, um, that had, you know, everything from philosophy to history to political science degrees, English, like whatever it was, um, they're all doing completely unpredictable things. Like if I look at all the people that I, you know, went to university with, I could have never predicted what people would have ended up doing um, as it stands right now. Yeah, and even those traditional industries, like they are being disrupted. Like when we were here last time, I think I mentioned a company called to you, QHR, which is a medical um, technology company. But one thing they offer is that you can do doctor's calls uh, over Skype, right? So mm -hmm. even a doctor that's traditionally, like, you go to the office and see them, it's like, even those people, like one that's really happening with the advancement of technology and internet, it's like, you can work from anywhere now. And people want to be less in an office and be able to work wherever. So even a doctor that traditionally, like, you have to go see them at their office, is now like you can get onto your smartphone and do a Skype call, and that's still a legitimate way to speak to your doctor. Like obviously yeah. some things you have to do in person if they need to do like a physical, but a lot of things you could just, you know, by talking to them, you can resolve. So even those traditional industries, I think there's a lot of room for disruption and, and movement. I think that's the key thing. A big reason why I this podcast is just to inspire people that we can change things and do, like, what are the millennials we're going to do? Because, like, I think we have so much potential and possibility, and it's just really acting on all the opportunities that exist out there. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, telemedicine is a really good example. Um, QHR is doing some interesting stuff. Um, through one of their businesses called Medio, which is what you just described. Yeah. It's like, you know, you can basically like Skype with some with a doctor and get a medical opinion on a variety of different conditions, I think. Um, doctors on Demand in the United States is probably, I think, the biggest organization that's doing this, and they're backed by like Dr. Phil, who is like Oprah's counterpart. Um, but, you know, going back to what you said, I really, really do feel strongly that uh, if I, if I drew, take it back a step, um, the, the difference between an entrepreneur and someone who's not is just that an entrepreneur actually went and did it. They attempted to do it, right? Entrepreneur doesn't mean you succeeded. It just means you tried. Um, and I really do think that we are now, you know, a generation, again, being millennials, I think you're one as well, but I really do think that we are a generation of entrepreneurs. Um, I think we are changing the world and I don't mean this in a cheesy way I mean it in a very literal way we are changing the way that the world works every all the systems that we have in place the the things about society that people take for granted um, we're changing it like new opportunities are popping up new businesses are being invented we're re again rethinking like all these things that have been done for a hundred years the exact same way um, and I find that fascinating. But the, the most powerful you know, nugget in all of that is that 
I really do think that anyone can do it. I just think you have to do it. Again, going back to that entrepreneur thing, you just have to try. Um, and there's so many cases where uh, I've seen opportunities for people and I'm like, oh, they're gonna do this, they're gonna, it's gonna be so successful, I can't believe they have this opportunity, and they just never do anything. It just never happens. It's like a great idea, whatever, for whatever reason they decide that they're just not gonna try. Um, I think we have a generation of people who are willing to try now. Um, maybe that's actually no different than the baby boomers were. Maybe it's no different than you know Gen X in the 90s and stuff like that. But um, but in in all reality, you know, there's less of a draw to only go out and do like you know the professional thing. Go be like a professional as a you know a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant, whatever. That was very popular in our parents' generation. Now everybody wants to run their own startup. That's what I'm seeing anyway. Or everybody wants to, you know, buy that rental apartment where they can, you know, rent it out and have build equity in a property and, and that's their way of being entrepreneurial. Or I even know someone who <laughs> this is funny, they bought uh in the city of Vancouver, you're actually allowed to have chickens in your backyard now. And so these people were, you know, trying to start uh like an organic a little organic farm basically in their backyard. And to them, being entrepreneurial was starting like their own farm so that they could not go and buy food, which is really interesting if you think about it. Uh, I don't think it fully worked because it turns out that your backyard is generally not big enough to grow enough food to sustain you for an extended period of time. But, you know, they definitely were able to get eggs and certain types of like spices and other, you know, things that they would have needed in their backyard. So I think you can be an entrepreneur in a lot of different ways, but we're in a situation where it's so prevalent in society and so many icons that we have um, have been strong you know entrepreneurs uh, both male and female I might add um, that uh, everybody kind of feels like they should at least try now yeah the times have definitely changed my take on it is that back then when you became a doctor a lawyer that made you enough cash to live a very luxurious lifestyle now it's kind of like those are just you know almost middle-class jobs, right? So there's still a higher level of income, but it really comes down to, like, I think an entrepreneur, your sky's the limit is what it comes down to. And if you want to disrupt and change, then you really want to go that road because that's really going to give you the maximum benefit. Sure. What is, I only want to get into, like, what inspires you? A lot of people always ask, like, you know, what kind of legacy do you want to leave? Like, what is it that, like, what kind of impact do you want to make on this earth? Um, so it's interesting because I, I kind of come from a community of people that have some pretty grandiose goals. Um, I'm, when I when I think about this question, because I, I do think about it frequently, um, I try and be pragmatic about it. So I think like, I'm not necessarily trying to save the whales. Uh, if I ever am in such a position that I can do something really, you know, hardcore and, and grandiose like that, um, I would love to try, but uh, when I think about the legacy, as you put it, um, I think that, you know, I'm only 33, so it's not like I'm, I'm disappearing anytime soon, hopefully, <laughs> but um, at the same time, I, I'm going to go back to what I said earlier about creating jobs. I think the, the most good that we do in the world right now is giving people the opportunity to earn an income, have a livelihood, and, you know, live their own lives and start families there's a huge ripple effect there, right? Like you employ someone, they end up having kids, they're supporting their kids. Suddenly, you know, instead of 30 people, there's 90 people that are like technically dependents on your organization or something like that. Um, I think that's fantastic. And the second iteration of that is, you know, more over, more than just giving people jobs, creating an environment where it's a great place to work is really, really important to me. Um, in terms of our organization, beyond just helping the individuals that we work with, um, there are some really interesting projects that we are hoping to have the opportunity to work on, and, and we're in talks with some really interesting philanthropic organizations at the moment from, I can't really go into too much detail about this, unfortunately, but uh, everyone from the United Nations to something that I mentioned earlier about a project that we had with uh, Loreen Jobs uh, in 2013, where we I feel like we made an impact to um, you know BGC3, which is Bill Gates's uh, you know one of his philanthropic organizations and whatnot. So 
there are opportunities for us to effectively you know, uh, donate our time um, and really help some of these organizations become more sophisticated in how they approach um, the types of things that we do here. Um, so stay tuned, I guess we'll find out. <laughs> a little bit of suspense, I like it. <laughs> Going back a little bit, you mentioned that uh, one of your companies was a big failure. What did you learn from that experience? Like, What was the big takeaway from that point in time? Yeah, so it's it's that like uh, weird situation where it's you know you, you don't learn what to do you kind of learn what not to do so, um, you know, it's funny because I feel like a lot of the parts of this conversation are gonna like all tie together uh, in the next few minutes but um, here we were and me and my business partner had both had you know a little bit of success in one shape or form or another. Uh, I had been in real estate, he'd kind of been doing his own thing and had, had been successful at like whatever it was that he'd been spending his time doing. Um, and again, you know, no one was calling this generation millennials yet, but we were millennials and we decided to, you know, try and start a company. And so the first problem that I think we faced is that I can remember like a lunch that we had where we were, we were both kind of like, let's start a company, what should we do? That is the wrong way to approach starting a business. You don't sit down with a bunch of like-minded people and say, hey, we're gonna quit our jobs and you know, launch into something we've never done before. You find a problem or you fill a need, you, know, you find a solution to something and that's when things really work. So fast forwarding to Thrive. By the time this company started, believe it or not, I had actually told myself that I never wanted to run another company again because it's such a pain in the ass. It's like unbelievable the amount of responsibility that comes with it everything from the bookkeeping to the HR to sales to you know space needs and real estate like it's it's really really complicated and it's kind of a 24/7 thing and I you know there's something to be said for the peace of mind that you get uh, having a nine to five so uh, when I started thrive I wasn't like hey I want to go start a business it was like people were coming to me to help with their problems in this case it was you know people asking me how to help their websites rank better in search results, which was the problem I was solving. But um, it was a very practical and pragmatic, you know, situation. And I was just expecting to be a freelancer. I didn't think that we would be a huge agency eventually, or on our path to being a really big agency. Um, so that was probably the first thing. I think the second thing that I learned is that, despite us, you know, being really excited about the industry we wanted to enter, we actually had no expertise in it whatsoever. So again, you know, we just identified that this might be a cool business to start. Um, neither of us had a technical background. Neither of us understood the technology behind digital signage. We didn't know how to service it properly. We didn't know how to create like the content. It was all a learning experience. Uh, luckily, it was on our dime and nobody else's. But um, there was no, you know, technical advantage that. Uh, we would have had over anyone else that decided to quit their job and start a digital signage company. I think, if anything, what we had working for us was the vision that this, you know, in the near future was going to be a thing, that people were going to want this in, like, retail environments, for instance, but we were too early. Um, the other thing that we didn't evaluate properly was the cost of entering the market. So with many businesses, the thing that I love about the agency business is that it's pretty low overhead when you start. Like it's your time, you work out of an apartment and you have a laptop and you're an agency, like you're a freelancer, right? The business that we got into, there were like huge capital expenditures, not even operating expenditures, just capital expenditures. We needed inventory at the time. We were talking about plasma screens, like LCD hadn't even been really invented yet or it was new. Um, th this was like an incredibly expensive area to get into. The, the hardware was expensive. The software was super expensive. Everything felt expensive, probably because we basically had no money. That didn't help either. <laughs> but, um, you know, I could keep going on, but there were some really critical things that uh, I learned, again, the hard way that just don't make sense. It, this is not like a, like a winner-takes-all situation in business. Like, there's lots of people who probably do everything I just described and have wonderful success, but it totally didn't work for me um, or my business partner. And so it was funny because I actually went for a beer with him like a week or two ago, and he he literally asked me the same question. He was like, you know, like taking a step back, it's been like years and years now. Like, what do you think went wrong? And so 
we got to have this conversation and we kind of joked around about it. Uh, at the time, it was quite painful. Like we were not excited about the fact that we were failing and losing all of our money. Um, now I'm happy to say that we're both in a situation where we can kind of look back at it and, and laugh a little bit. Um, but from a learning experience, like I would never take that back. You know, I would never. If you were like, hey, okay, it, like in addition to this interview, I actually have this magic button, and when you press it, you can erase any part of your life that you know you wish never happened. I would never, never take that back. Uh, it, it is absolutely fundamental to the success that I've been able to have uh, a little bit later on in my life. So, yeah. Well, those are the defining moments, right? And I think that story just really said that it's just like, you know, like some of our biggest pain points are our greatest learning experiences, right? And so yeah. going through that, you really recognize that you learn from that. And so it's that's really what you have to take away. And that's the beauty of failure. Like when you go through those experiences, I think you take so much out of them. And it's like, and that's why you shouldn't be afraid of because you can really benefit more than you ever stand to lose. Totally. I do want to be yourself with your time. I know you have a lot of invoices to do. So we're going to have a bit of a rapid fire here to uh, wrap up. Uh, I'm just gonna ask you some quick uh, questions. Just keep the answers quite short. Sure. You've been to TED. I've always wanted to go. Um, how has that been? They moved the conference to the one of the main ones to Vancouver a few years back. You went briefly. How is it? What's it like? Uh, amazing experience. Um, so the thing that's cool, I think, about TED is that you can actually go and meet all of these people who have been huge influences in your life. So. I'll go back to the SEO part of my life, but you know, uh, the first like real thing that I was able to excel at in internet marketing was search engine optimization, which is funny because we don't really do that much of it anymore. Um, the industry has changed, but one of the icons in that industry is a gentleman named Matt Cutts, and he, Matt Cutts is kind of Google's unofficial representative for everything SEO. He's actually since gone on leave, so I don't think he's very active. At, at this moment in time, but literally for like 10 years, this guy's word was like SEO gospel. Um, and so the first time I went to TED, it was in Long Beach, California. I used to, it was there for like 25 years. I actually went to the last conference there that they ever had before moving it here to Vancouver. Um, and so I show up, I know no one. I'm in this hotel in a place I've never been, in a conference center I've never stepped foot into, and here we are, and there's like all these crazy people walking around at the at the opening party um, and I remember kind of feeling a little bit out of place it's intimidating right there's like you know groups of people there that have known each other for a long time everybody's kind of running a big company or something like that or you know influential politician or an actor like all I shouldn't have been there like that's kind of what it felt like but on my way home on the bus so this is a shuttle that Ted like you know booked for Ted attendees um, there was one familiar face and it was Matt Cutts. And so I'm literally like beside myself. I couldn't believe that I actually was like able to go and say hi to this guy, but I did. Um, and it's just kind of an illustration of the fact that, you know, you see all these people in the news and in the media, um, they are the influencers in, in, in any number of different industries, the thought leaders, <clears throat> all of that stuff. Um, and here he was, and I actually got to like say hi and have a, a pretty good conversation with him. I actually have a funny picture um, later that day with me, and I, I literally have my arm around Matt Cutts, I think, or we're standing next to each other, and he's smiling, and I have like the biggest smile on my face I could possibly have. Like, I don't think my face even smiles that big, but that's how excited I was. So it took like something that you know, I only saw on the internet this guy and then made it real. And so that, to me, is the coolest, most powerful thing about TED is that you can just go and talk to anyone. Like, everyone's there. It's pretty cool. That's really cool. I think I saw that photo on your LinkedIn profile. I think it's there. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely it's definitely there. there. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, I was on your Twitter space, or uh, Twitter account. I saw a lot of tweets about space. Are you a space guy? Oh, man, I'm obsessed with space. Like, on my spare time... I read about the outer solar system, the Kuiper Belt, and like the okay. Oort cloud. Even just saying those words in like makes me an instant geek. Um, but I'm also obsessed with things that like certain people are doing right now in terms of space exploration. I find that fascinating. I daydream about it on all my spare time. Blue Origin just got their um, first shuttle into space and landed safely. Would you go? Would you? Uh... <laughs> um, 
I would love to. I so I think at some point in my life I will visit outer space. Uh, that'll be when it's a lot safer uh, and reliable than it is right now. Um, it's funny because my girlfriend Julie is like, anytime I bring this up, she's like, "You're not going. You're, there's no way. You're not allowed." Kind of thing. Um, but I do think that in our lifetimes, the things that like SpaceX and Blue Origin are working on right now will become even better. And I think more importantly, the cost of going to outer space is going to drop dramatically. And that's really what um, the whole uh, thing with last week with Blue Origin was all about. The, the, the waves that they made in the news were all about uh, the fact that by having a reusable rocket that can go into low Earth orbit, deploy a payload, and then literally land itself back on the surface of the Earth is like having you know, a jumbo jet like, like that you can reuse. So imagine for a moment that you're trying to fly to New York from Vancouver and the jet is not reusable. Imagine how much a ticket would cost. And so that is what it's like presently to go to outer space. That's why it's so expensive. What's going to happen is a step change in the technology will allow the cost to drop significantly. And what is now, you know, even Blue Origin, I think, or Virgin Galactic, their tickets, they're selling them for like a quarter of a million dollars. In your and my lifetime, that'll drop to, you know, a totally normal rate that is probably on par, if not maybe more expensive, slightly more expensive than like what is currently like a first class ticket, like overseas somewhere. Um, but I really do believe that. And at that point, it will be my absolute pleasure to go and visit space. Nice. Uh, what is your favorite movie? The Thomas Crown Affair. I've never even heard of that. <laughs> Go check it out. It's awesome. And I, I'm talking about the remake with Pierce Brosnan, not the original. Okay, cool. Most influential or inspirational person in your life? Oh, there's so many. Do you mean from a business point of view or a personal point of view? Anyway, like, yeah, somebody, like a book that you read, autobiography, like shaping you as a child, uh, right. a business entrepreneur. I know there's so many levels, like, you can, I'm sure there's family members, like, there's definitely many ways to tackle this question. Okay. Well, we, we've talked a lot about business, so I'm going to talk about my business uh, idol or someone who's been very influential. Um, when I was like 12, I read a book called Losing My Virginity, which is Richard Branson's autobiography. Luckily, it was written at like a grade four level, so it wasn't very difficult for me to read. Um, but uh, it was huge for me. Like, I, I honestly picked up this book and didn't even realize what I was about to read. I think now at 33, if I reread it, I'd probably think it was like, you know, kind of a crappy read. It's probably not the most intellectual of of discussions but at the same time it was you know his journey from being a child all the way to basically founding Virgin Galactic um, and the journey is quite impressive and so everybody knows who Richard Branson, Branson is he's the founder of Virgin Records and went on to you know found a number of different companies including Virgin Airlines Virgin Galactic Virgin Cola all kinds of all kinds of different businesses um, and I think that really channeled my interest in business at a very early age. Um, so I would have to say that really early on, he was super influential. I think that these days, I'm really uh, enamored by people like Elon Musk, who I see as, an, as a modern day industrialist. He's not only tackling space, as we just mentioned, but uh, you know, renewable energy and um, you know, electric cars and, and varying types of transportation. And I just find it, absolutely fascinating to see somebody who can take that much on and be super effective. I find it hard enough to run a, a small company of like 25, 30 people. I have no idea how he's doing, what he's doing and not quite frankly losing his mind, but um, hats off to that guy. Cool. Any last words you want to uh, leave the audience? Um, I mean... Honestly, like I feel like we talked about a lot. I, I think, if anything, I want to thank you for having me and asking such interesting questions. I think that um, it's always interesting to take, like I'm, I literally, you're at my office right now, just for people who aren't aware of that. You're at my office right now. I literally had to like stop, you know, my crazy day, take a moment. I When, when Phil showed up here today, I was kind of like, okay, hey, I only have, you know, 60 minutes. I'm really busy, blah, blah, blah. But it's really nice to take a step back um, and just have you know a conversation about the things that are actually important in life and some of the reasons why I'm actually here to begin with. It's a nice you know pause 
to uh, be able to take in the day and kind of have a reminder of what's actually important. I think that if there's anything that should be a takeaway from this talk, it should be that very concept that, you know, listen to everything we've discussed, but take a step back from whatever it is you're doing, try and be introspective about the things that are actually important, um, and recognize that, you know, what you have to do tomorrow or the next day uh, can be quite influential depending on how you decide to make the choices that you have to make, basically. The old saying, it's not about getting to the top of the mountain, it's a journey that really matters, right? And I think people forget that it's so easy to get caught up and just aim at the destination and not really focus on the journey at all. Completely agree. Sweet. And where can people find you if they want to learn more about Thrive Digital? What are uh, some good places to look you up? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So our website is thrivedigital.co, not .com. Um, if you want to connect with me at any point, uh, find me on Twitter. I'm at jzbecker uh, or LinkedIn under Jonathan Becker. And I'm always happy to connect with uh, anyone who reaches out. And I'll put all those contact details in the show notes. Thank you everyone for tuning in. Check out philipsfrequency.com for the latest blog posts and podcasts. And if you want to find me, I'm also on Twitter or uh, check out the Apple Store to uh, subscribe to the podcast there. Thanks again, Jonathan. Thanks so much for having me.